It's the show Agent Orange slash Adolf Twitler would love to shut down. So here's the story, folks. I am the least black person that you've ever seen in your entire life. In fact, we did very well relative to racist people. It's the no bullshit zone. It's called fake news. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. I know who you are. Just wait. On the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome to it. Boy, do we have a lot of stuff to cover today, including, oh my God, the Never Trump movement, the funeral for a president, uh, the possible funeral for a nation, and the death of common sense and decency. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this ride to hell in a handbasket is the Week in Review. And of course, I am your host. Welcome to my show. Uh, my name is Shaggy Jenkins. I'm a critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal insane, but always centered in common sense and found on my website, shaggyjenkins.com. If you would like to find my correspondent, well... You can find him damn near everywhere, as this guy is all over the dial, Facebook, social media, and just the world, being his wonderful self. Please welcome, from the city of Chicago, correspondent Chris Bass. You have overcome, for I am here. Thank you so much, Shaggy. How are you, how you doing, man? How's everything? Okay, it's going great, and I want to start off the show with something about George H.W. Bush's funeral. Can I say something that doesn't mean any disrespect, but is in fact a very truthful statement about his funeral? Mm-hmm, sure. Okay, that was by far the funniest thing I have seen out of Washington, D.C. in ages. Every single person that gave a eulogy for George H.W. Bush had really kind of a cutesy story and like a, a really funny epitaph, so much so that... Every person that eulogized our 41st former president came away looking like a stand-up comedy just killing on a great night in Vegas. Uh, Chris, did you get a chance to see this? I, I did watch it. I, I had to say that uh, I think everybody hit out the park. I, they, they, their timing was good. Uh, they didn't trip and fall. They got up there and said what they had to say. Uh, I do have to go with... Uh, uh, Bush friend and also a politician, uh, Alan Simpson, uh, who got up there to speak and was very jovial and and was had very regaling of stories. But when he got finished, they panned him twenty minutes later, and he had his head down sleep. Yeah. I, I thought that was a riot. I thought it was hilarious that George W. Bush, when he was closing out the eulogy, says, "My father has a big sense of humor, and that's why we allowed him to speak." And that was just, it was it was really kind of odd because in the tumultuous kind of D.C. environment we, that we've been in, having the Bushes come back up in the news was almost like, and I hate to say this, liberal and conservative-like, it was almost like a, a nostalgia moment for a simpler America, wasn't it? You know what, good valid point, because even though obviously both sides of the aisle don't agree, you don't have to disagree all the time with the person across from you. I mean, go back to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan had what they call Reagan Democrats that worked with him. There was a there was a peace. Don't get me wrong. Not everybody's your favorite president over time. I understand that, but at least there was some sort of peace between both parties. Not like now. It's too much civil unrest. And when you see this unfortunate situation uh, with the death of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, but the fact that this man was loved. 
the fact this man was embraced. I give you, I, I showed you, I said on my show recently. So I reported like you and anybody else, we got the word about Mr. Bush passing away. I received an inbox in my messenger from one of my Facebook friends telling me, don't you ever again say anything about George W. Bush or George Herbert Walker Bush. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And she told me she didn't like him. How am I supposed to know that? I don't know. You can't separate the party, the man you hated. This man was a father, husband, grandfather, uncle. You know, you somebody lost a loved one. And she told me that she didn't even care about that. That, I think, is truly sad. Well, this is something that we have to consider is truly sad when it comes to this story is because when it comes to George Herbert Walker Bush and the ideals of the the core of the Republican Party, every single person that eulogized him did talk about how he held himself up to the party principles and to the mission that the nation needed to come first over partisanship. And it seemed like time after time after time in these eulogy speeches that a lot of people were kind of using the life and example of George H.W. Bush to throw some shade over the presidency of one Donald J. Trump. What do you think? Absolutely, because you look at the party for what it is. Not everybody represents what Trump is doing. Not everybody is on board with that. And it goes back to what George Herbert Walker Bush, during his time as conservative, being part of the GOP, there, you, you lead by example. There's a certain decorum. And again, it's you, you, when you are a person who has that much responsibility, we look at, for example, Mr. Bush's life, storybook, World War II, hero, uh, politician, CIA, vice president, and became, you know, president of the United States of America. And so... When you look at that, I always thought that there was like the mirror flip image to some degree of the candies, if you think about it to that degree. They're political families on both sides of the aisle. My thing is this. You can always learn from the past, which people like Sean Hannity on Fox News Channel always gives Ronald Reagan credit as the father of the current movement for conservatism. He always gives him credit for that. I think it's just smoke and mirrors. I don't think he really believes it, because if you did... Herbert Walker Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, would be a prime example of how a conservative president can comport himself in office. Yeah, because when it comes to Donald Trump, the thing that a lot of people are kind of bringing up is that Donald Trump, and especially this guy by the name of Jerry Taylor, when it comes to the policies and the, the absolute direction that the GOP is taking under Trump, unlike George H.W. Bush, that kind of tried to do things to uplift the party, Jerry Taylor is saying that Trump is tearing apart the GOP. Explain that, Chris. Well, when you are part of a grand old party like the GOP, a very traditional, uh, very uh, respectable of who and what they are, you look for effective leadership. And they don't see it in Trump. They see him as dismantling the party. Case in point, it was Jerry Taylor that said on Hill TV that Trump is not in a quote-unquote healthy place, warning that it could turn the party into blood, soil, and nationalism if it doesn't change its course. When you use words like blood, soil, and nationalism, that's very heavy duty. 
So you're talking about a dismantling of a party that's been around for years, and now you're talking about how do we rebuild and have effective leadership. Well, this is the thing, too, Chris, is because there was a comparison there made between our American politician and a French politician that not too long ago was making some big waves. What is the whole deal with trying to compare Donald Trump with this French politician that probably not a lot of Americans know, Marine Le Pen? Mm-hmm. What you're seeing is a a comparison to Le Pen, of course, being the president of France's um, National Rally Party, who was previously known as the National Front, and extremism, which is what I think Jerry Till is trying to uh, to accomplish here. Extremism to the probably to the far right of Genghis Khan. I don't think anybody wants that. I think you want to have your party being what it is, and sometimes center to right, depending on who you work with on the other side. I'll obviously with the uh, Democrats, I mean liberals, but when you make a comparison to that, you're talking about a co- completely polar shift in politics and how things are done. Pretty much a deconstruction of a party as we know it. And I think, again, when Jerry Taylor's trying to say that, we don't need a deconstruction. We need to remove Trump from this because he cannot lead us. Now, this is the thing, too, because when it comes to Taylor, he's kind of throwing himself in this whole lot of never-Trumpers. Now, we've always assumed, at least from 2016, that the never-Trumpers, people like, remember this, Lindsey Graham, um, (laughs) were in that whole movement saying, oh, we will not let Trump hijack our party. And, And then they did. When, when Jerry Taylor came out as a never-Trumper himself, he started talking about this is bad for the permanent health of the GOP. And, and when it comes to the permanent health of the GOP, in what ways is Trump damaging them? He's damaging by being himself. He is not a nice person. He is not a person that shows respect to the office. He is a person who constantly does not know how to comport himself as the president. Every time he's given papers return, we learned about, he turns the way, he wants to go off the fly, he wants to go off the cuff. Uh, he said to himself in many interviews, I don't really look at the type of uh, debriefing of, I just go on and, and add liberty and wing it. That's the best way. That is not the way if you are in charge of a country, like the United States of America. You can't go in there and wing it, which is what he does. No, now this is the thing too, is because there's this other group involved in this called the Nishkanan or the Nishkanan Center. Mm-hmm. And and they're wanting to host a conference where they ask the GOP to kind of have a a reset from Donald Trump. And and this is the thing, Chris, I'm just gonna throw this out there. I uh I, I don't know if at this point of the game we can actually reset the Republicans from Donald Trump. The damage has already been done. And I think they know that. I think they're screaming for help, the ones who want help. And but see, this is what happens when you sign on to somebody you probably had doubts about in the first place, but did it for party purposes. And you want power and privilege. I've always said whoever's in power, divvies out said privileges. And so this is what you get. You, got, you knew who he was before he got into office when he was running for the presidency during that time. So it shouldn't be a big secret. I think what happens in time when you co-sign on something that you may have doubts about, and then it turns out to be what you believed in 
that the person is not fit to be in office, okay, how do we get out the deal? No, the deal's been done. The the the, the dots are the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. So it's a last ditch effort. Don't we want I admire them for doing this because it's a wake up call for them, but it's a last ditch effort for them to try to, I guess wiggle their way out of this, but I think it's a little bit too late. It does seem like it's too late because when it comes to Taylor and everybody, they say, quote, I think we're trying to forge something new. But when it comes to the Republicans, new ideas to them seem to be the old ideas of like, uh, I don't know, strong government rule and semi-fascism and, and this this nationalism that, that seems to be mm. rooted in racism. This is the thing. They've crossed over a certain azimuth, as it were, a certain apogee of orbit around this whole terrible racist planet that they found themselves uh, uh, over. I'm not so sure Republicans have enough fuel in their tanks to break this devastating trajectory that they've put their party in. No, they can't. It's, for one thing, it's too much involved to me. People involved, obviously, and the majority vote are with the people who are behind Trump whether they are people who believe in Trump or reluctantly get behind Trump for the sake of the party. So you do have those type of angles going involved here. Also what happens is that the infighting that's obviously going on is going to continue on regardless of what you say, what I say, or what uh, Jerry Taylor says. It doesn't matter. It, I, once again, it's a gallant effort, but the damage is done. The die has been cast. Uh, the man is in office. He's already shown who he was and who he is. And I think at the same time, we look at just as a whole, people are do not want to admit they made a mistake in voting for Trump. No. They'd rather be quiet or put their hands in the uh, sorry, put their hands in the sand like ostriches. Now, this is the thing too, is when we talk about the kind of ideals and stuff that Trump has has kind of epitomized and things that he has brought up time and time again, I, I mentioned the N-word. The white N-word, that is, nationalist. Now, Donald yes, Trump Donald Trump has been a little bit on the uh, nationalist front. And, and as such, he's elicited a, a lot of people that have nationalist tendencies that follow him. Here's one of them that's been back in the news this week. Because one year ago, at a protest at Charlottesville, Virginia, James Fields ran his car into a crowd of protesters killing 32-year-old Heather Hare. And, and Chris, we're starting to learn that James, um, James basically doesn't really care what we all think about this, does he? No, he doesn't. Um, when you look at the story of who he is, um, he was talking to his mother as he is being in a Vian prison over the phone, and he pretty much said, that he did not care about taking out another life in Heather Hare. When you have that type of what I call pure evil in your soul, the lawyers on his side can spend all they want to. You saw what happened when he ran through those protesters and then put the car in reverse to do more damage. Well, of course, you know, premeditated. Not only that, you're going to say that you fear for your life kind of similar to what some of these cops do when they shoot people of color. You fear for your life, and you're going to take the car to run them over? Yeah, because, see, here's the deal. And, and, and this, 
the fearing for their life thing. Remember how that that was that was uh, James' defense. He he was basically going to court and he said that I was under such duress, I was under such scared uh, feelings that I had to charge into the crowd in order to preserve life and property. But I want to read you some of this this excerpt, and I want to get a little bit of your reaction, Chris. Now, this is the thing. When Field's mom started to call James in jail, part of the exchange was when his mother brought up the fact that Heather's mother had just lost her very, well, her, her very daughter. So she goes, quote, she lost her daughter. This was his reply. Chris, he says, it doesn't effing matter. She's a communist. And when the mom said, stop talking like that, he goes, it's, it isn't up for questioning. She's the enemy mother. Does that play into the sounds of a guy that was afraid for his life and basically took Heather's life in self-defense? Or does this sound like a premeditated hate attack? The latter. When you say things like she's the enemy, you're using code language that no matter what happens, the enemy must be destroyed. That's how I look at it. And also when you look at words like she's a communist, as you know, communist has always been associated with being something bad, something terrible, something anti-American. And when you use that type of language, you don't humanize the person. You you dehumanize it, and everything that you have, whether it's communism or enemy, there's no human beings behind it. You know, it's a group of people that you believe that you believe that are in that type of mentality. But case in point, using words like that does not make you uh, sympathetic to a person who just lost their daughter. No. no empathy whatsoever. This is the thing, too, because James Field's defense and his defense lawyer have said time and time again, this was a normal man that felt uh, uh, just a panic, a sudden rush of, oh, my God, my life is in peril. But according to this little exchange between him and his mom and the way that he behaved with the arresting officers, the thing is, is, Chris, we got to we got to ask. Does this sound like the picture of a man who's going to have a successful defense when it comes to saying his acts were not murderous intent? No, that's going to, I, I hate to say a wait and see approach because sometimes these courts are always premeditated or are what I call the fixed already being in. I would like to see that the fact that someone like him who is trying to play himself as the victim in this situation, which is totally horrendous, that he's trying to obviously get off and not serve any serious time or no time at all. I hope the jury, I hope the people realize that this is a desperate attempt for him not to go to jail and see right through him. He is a racist. He just premeditated. He committed murder and hopefully justice will be served. Now, this is the thing on officers body cams. Fields was seen at the time of his arrest. So it was about a mile away from where the attack happened. He was seen saying, I didn't want to hurt anybody. I thought that they were going to attack me. But this phone call happens after that. And it sounds like at that point he had had a little time to think. And his defense that, that he wanted to do just wasn't good enough for his white nationalist sensibilities. 
But who's to say, Shaggy, that that was a performance? So say, for example, you're part of a white nationalist group and you you take somebody out or try to beat somebody on the street or try to get arrested. Maybe you were instructed to give some sort of empathy and emotion. You don't feel that way, obviously, but it's to make sure that when you start the timeline of you being arrested, that maybe your case will be looked at as someone who is empathetic. That could have been a behavior pattern that was told to them, look, when you get caught by the authorities, you make sure you act like A, B, and C because we want to establish a, you know, some sort of story in case it goes further. Now, I'm just saying that because that type of behavior pattern has also been taught when you deal with the authorities. The thing is, though, is that James, he does show a lot of signs of brainwashing because after the arrest and after calling Heather a communist, he called the group of protesters terrorists. And that right. does seem to kind of mimic what people like Unite the Right and everybody that organized the Charlottesville March kind of was putting out there as propaganda. So this is the thing. When it comes to all of these people that are basically saying, look, there's violence on both sides of the equation, will this event from Charlottesville show, A, a guy that was a nationalist prick and just basically ran into an innocent crowd, or B, violence on both sides from both the white nationalists and the Antifa? What has to be established is that you have a protagonist and an antagonist. So if the person is taking, say, a billy club and trying to go upside your head and you're protecting yourself, that's not... Are wrong on both sides. That's one person trying to go upside the head with a bitty club, and you're trying to protect yourself. You're trying to defend yourself. That has to be established. So that argument that 45 said, well, there was wrong on both sides. No, it wasn't. One act on premeditation wanted to go out and do bodily harm to what they call terrorists and communists and everything else. All of them premeditated. So people were trying to protect themselves that has to be established as well. Now, there's there's kind of another story I want to bring up here, because as long as we're talking about violent acts in America, look, James Fields clearly, when he went to Charlottesville, was looking for trouble. He was looking for some sort of confrontation. But I want to kind of bring up the story of uh, Jacqueline Smith. What can you tell me about this woman out of Baltimore and her stabbing death? Well, Jacqueline Smith, uh, it's a sad story. It deals with a random act of kindness that became fatal. So she is a woman who is married to a pastor and was trying to help out some panhandlers. So as the story goes, this is happening in Baltimore, and they just got finished celebrating their daughter's birthday, and they're on their way, and they stop, and they see a woman who is, is holding what alleged to be a baby wrapped up in, you know, blankets, uh, help me feed my baby was the sign. And so usually, uh, Jack does not help out in situations, but she went to her purse, got $10 out, and told the mother to come to the car and handed her $10. So she handed her $10, and she felt, being the woman, very grateful, and, and things that they didn't... Then a man had come over to where the quote-unquote mother was and, and said... Thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. And as Jacqueline said, God bless you, the man took out a knife 
and started to stab her repeatedly while she was sitting in the car. She gets stabbed multiple times. Uh, then the young lady who so-called needs help with the baby, she takes the woman's purse. Uh, they take the jewelry from around her neck and they go off into uh, the streets. And so now you have the husband who's trying to make sense, try to call 911 and make sure that his wife is okay. And unfortunately, she bleeds to death and very, you know, it just breaks your heartstrings because here you are witnessing this whole thing and an act of kindness brought this on. Now, the thing is, though, is, I mean, I don't want to play that game, but I'm going to be that guy. Baltimore sure. does have kind of a violent crime problem as of late, don't they? Yes, they do. You know, but at the same time, you know, when you're trying to be kind to somebody, you don't think about that. And come to find out that the panhandler did not have a baby. It was an old uh, stuffed doll that they used for the con. And that whole thing, again, when you're trying to mischief people. And my thing was this. Okay, you got the $10. You got the purse. You got the jewelry. Why did you find the need to stab and kill this woman? You got everything. Hmm. So what, what's, the, what's the situation in that? I said it before a long time ago, Shaggy, I believe in pure evil. These people are evil. You got what you want. Okay, then leave. Yeah, and here's the bad thing. Cops are still looking for both suspects. A woman who appears to be in her mid-20s, around 5 feet tall, and a guy that is, well, about 5 feet 10 and slightly older. Cops haven't arrested either suspect yet. Chris, we have got to get ready to uh, take a break, but when we come back, we have got a lot to stuff, uh, a lot of stuff left to cover, including things like, oh my God, how bad are little boys in America now? Plus, I kind of want to give a little bit of an update with uh, Michael Flynn and stuff like that. So, Chris, hang on in just a sec. We're going to come back. For everybody else, though, hey, if you've missed or loved any part of this show, don't forget you can check us out on Spotify and Stitcher as well as our website, shaggyjenkins.com. If you've missed any part of this, the Weekend Review Show, you don't want to miss any part of this. So make sure you go to the website, shaggyjenkins.com, or follow us wherever fine social media is served at Shaggy Live. When we get back, it's more of the Weekend Review right here on the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Welcome to 60 Second Civics, the daily podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. For more than 150 years before 1776, the American colonists had grown used to little direct interference by Parliament in colonial affairs. This policy was known as salutary neglect. The term comes from a speech by Edmund Burke, given in the House of Commons in 1775. He said, When I know that the colonies in general owe little or nothing to any care of ours, and that they are not squeezed into this happy form by the constraints of watchful and suspicious government, but that through a wise and salutary neglect, a generous nature has been suffered to take her own way to perfection.
When I reflect upon these effects, when I see how profitable they have been to us, I feel all the pride of power sink, and all presumption in the wisdom of human contrivances melt and die away within me. My rigor relents. I pardon something to the spirit of liberty. However, the Seven Years' War of 1756 to 1763 forced the British to incur many debts. To make matters worse, Britain faced pressure to reduce taxes in Britain. Parliament therefore sought to increase taxes and its control over America, which led to discontent among the colonists. That's all for today's podcast, 60 Second Civics, where civic education only takes a minute. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. More news, less alternative facts. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Yeah, it's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome back. It is our week in review where we take all of the big headlines of the week, look through all of them, and decide that some stories are just terrible and crappy and we're not going to talk about them. Some of those stories that I'm not going to be talking about today is Melania's Christmas tree decorations as I have seen The Handmaid's Tale and let's just be honest, that scares the bejesus out of me. Hey, on the show is a guy that does not flinch for anything, including what looks like dead Muppets hung up in the White House halls. Please welcome from the city of Chicago. He is our correspondent from the Midwest, Chicago's own Chris Bass. No, no, we can't have dead Muppets. No, that's no, you, 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 you might get, you might get a headlock from me, man. We can't have that. That's the, that's no good, man. I know, I know, but there's something about when it comes to Melania Trump's decorating uh, uh, sensibilities. What is right. it about her that kind of screams Night of the Dead? Yeah, I mean, to me, she should have that, you know, old-fashioned Bella Lugosi accent. Mm-hmm. You know, well, uh, I, I. I want to make these trees blood red. This is the thing, because I know she's from Slovenia, right? And, and it just kind of makes yes. you... I, I want to bring this up, and I'm going to ask this very honestly of our audience, so if they know, give us hashtag Slovenian Christmas, the answer to this question. How horrible are Slovenian Christmases that Melania Trump decorates the White House like an episode of The Twilight Zone every year? It doesn't look good at all. It's not festive. It's not happy. Make you want to slit your wrist. You know, it's just not good. Mm. It really isn't. You know, Chris, I, I mean, all decorating sensibilities aside, every time I've seen the pictures of the White House, I'm just like, 
holy cow, they're really trying to scare people away from that place, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. You know, you would think, again, you've seen traditional White House Christmas decorations. Once again, you know, state-of-the-art, always, you know, traditional with a little modern mix to it. This is like traditional modern uh, Night of the Living Dead almost. Yeah, I know. It's like, Donald, Donald, I have perfect theme. It is called Blood of My Enemy Stains Bleak Trees in Barren Wasteland. And he's like, perfect. I like it. Oh, yeah. You know, so you see, we see the wicked, you know, forest of all these red trees. It's like, well, first, you know, Miss First Lady, you know, Mrs. Trump, what do you call these trees? Let's see. I call this one a positive and this one O negative. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I call this one Michael Flynn. This one is Michael Cohen. You know? (laughs) Right. God. Okay. That's it. This is the thing. I wanted to have this little moment of levity because we've got to talk about a story that is on its surface and in its nature. And let's just be honest, the deeper you go, it's just a disturbing story. I am going to start it off with a very simple question before we get to this article from the New York Post. Chris, as of lately, what the hell is wrong with young teenage boys in America? Uh, too much time on their hands, and at uh, times could be uh, very devious. And I, I, most guys, I think, you know, just not really giving a damn. You know, this is the thing, because this story comes out of Ohio, and it concerns uh, uh, Jeremiah Horton, who is an 18-year-old male that decided to engage in sexual acts with a minor, videotape it, and then distribute it to people that both he knew and that she knew. Now, he's facing two counts of pandering sexually oriented uh, material involving a uh, a minor after investigators in Hamilton County determined that he had shared the video with students that went to the young ladies' school. And and, I mean, I'm just going to bring this up because it, it kind of is weird to me. At what point did this become a thing, Chris? Well, I think part of it does do with the fact that being on social media, everybody wants to class their 15 minutes of fame. And we see this, we see it on uh, uh, Instagram, uh, World Star, you know, for younger people. That's what they want. They like that, you know, that quick hit. Uh, on Instagram, you got like 10 seconds of stuff. So everybody wants to be infamous or famous. I dare say infamous first. And even if you're among your friends, you still get traction. Or dare I say followers. Because that's what they want. So if you do this, for example, what this young man did, mm-hmm. I'm using young man terminology very loosely here, Jeremiah Horton, 18 years old, and you're recording, what, 14-year-old girls and 15 to 16-year-old girls having sex, and you go to your group of guys and say, look, man, look what I did, and they pass around the old classic commercial. You tell two friends, and they tell two friends. Through social media is all over the place. You know, this is the thing. It is kind of like the uh, multi-level marketing pyramid scheme of embarrassment because just like you brought up, he wasn't caught doing just the one act. It turns out that, that young Mr. Jeremiah Horton who is all of 18 years of age, and by God, somebody should have taught him better. I'm looking at you, public school system. Um, when it comes to the acts that he did... He's kind of in R. Kelly territory because he's committed so many minor girls to video that police and officials in Hamilton County 
aren't sure they can even identify all of his victims. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, Shaggy. Uh, I went to high school with R. Kelly, briefly. Uh, we went here in Chicago to Kenwood Academy. This was before all everything went down. And uh, at the time, a very nice guy. And then, unfortunately, we, we heard about the videotape about him and uh, underage girls, underage children, having sex. I remember people telling me that he would, you know, go around the whole neighborhood, the whole high school, the Kenwood Academy, uh, driving around, you know, fancy cars, which, of course, is seductive. It's just like you hear about the predators with the ice cream trucks and everything else. Same premise, same mentality. So he goes back to the high school, pick up all these young girls, and then he has their way with them. And and I thought about that on reading the story because when you look at someone of 18 years of age, now let's call it for what it is. So back in the day when you were in high school, depending on your mindset, if you saw some freshmen coming in, oh, man, how sweet fresh meat, man, we're going to get these girls and everything else. And that's how guys thought and vice versa. But today's territory is so dangerous. And it's not just a little world of some high school. It's the world of the world period on the Internet. So not only if you are a person, a young lady who's embarrassed, you're embarrassed times what a gazillion million people who've seen it. Yeah, and let's just go ahead and put this out here because I've heard this from several reputable people younger than me that are supposed to be up on this kind of stuff. <gasps> the Internet is forever. So these acts could have long, long-standing impacts, not just on Jeremiah, because let's just face it, he is a sex offender for life now. But the girls right. that he actually had encounters with, even the ones that are of unknown victimage now, if somebody recognizes them in the future, this is lifelong consequences. And do you think that we're telling young men these days about the consequences of their stupid, harebrained ideas? No, we're not. And also look at this. If you're an unfortunate victim... And this, of course, still in the Internet and it doesn't go anywhere. How can you get a job? I'm not wishing anything bad on them. But say, for example, that pops up somewhere and people do background research and things of that nature. It, it wouldn't surprise me if that happened. So you single handedly had destroyed these girls lives. Mm. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is, too, is that when it comes to young boys and Luckily, I don't have one. I have a daughter. I am going to say something, Chris, that on this show, I don't think has been said in a national forum. Okay, so here we go. This is the thing. Most of the time in the United States, we tell young girls, guard yourself. Make sure that you check the room for cameras. Make sure that this isn't some sort of setup. Make sure that he's... But this is something I'm going to throw out there. This is not the fault of the girls. And it's now time for us, instead of educating the girls how not to be victimized, Chris, bold idea here, I think it's time that we teach the boys, don't be little pricks and victimize women. No, I absolutely agree. And, and don't be predators. That has to be taught as well in the whole mix. Because what you're doing is that you're taking advantage of somebody's trust issues. They trust you. And the fact that they had the intimacy of having sex and being intimate that way, and you destroy that by filming it just to gain some sort of attention from your guys that you know, and then, of course, getting these various hits on your site from uh, having these various acts, 
that becomes not only detrimental to the person who's doing it, but also the person who's the victim. But you're absolutely right. We need to go after the person who initiated the whole thing, who had uh, the obvious idea to do it, where you get ideas from, we'll know it in time. But that has to be addressed immediately. The thing is, though, is it always kind of confuses me that when and when stories like this happen, because, you know, I try to do my due diligence and get out there and look at other people covering the same story. And time and time and time again, it always ended up being that the reporter, the anchor, the quote-unquote expert was telling girls... Girls, you need to guard against this. You need to be the one responsible for ensuring your own safety. But I'm saying that not enough time is being spent on guys. And, and Chris, this is the thing. We're both kind of parents here. We're both kind of savvy with growing up with male genitalia. At least I, I think I'm partly responsible for growing up with that. Um, we knew right from wrong because what our parents taught us and that was in the pre-internet age but really has the rules changed so much that you can't tell your 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 sons hey don't do this kind of behavior you cannot let the internet be the parent to your child just like with tv or other media outlets there's going to be time i hate to tell you this boys and girls who are parents quote unquote that you have to be a parent and you just can't let a babysitter like the internet babysit your children. Before the internet, it was like they were television. Put a child in front of a TV set for three hours, let them do their thing, I, I gotta do my thing. No, your thing is to love your child. That's your, that should be your thing. But now everybody's parent is like that. So the internet has become the 24-hour babysitter to a lot of these uh, young boys and girls. Now, okay, so as long as we're talking about this, because <clears throat> this week has also had kind of an interesting musical story from radio that we can tie in right here. Because boys, when it comes to this type of sexual predator behavior, they will kind of bring up examples that us, the older generation, well, we're no better than them. And this week, we saw a kind of interesting story happening in the world of holiday musical programming. It's that time again, ladies and gentlemen. Break out your nooses and your earplugs. Um, it's time for holiday music again. However, station after station across the United States is being petitioned, and two stations have already reacted to this. Chris, what do you think? When it comes to young men talking about us adults are no better, what do you think about this whole debate around the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside? Well, for one thing, that came out back in 1944's Christmas song, and it deals with a man and a woman going back and forth. It's too cold to go out there. It's snowy, and the man is trying to convince her to stay. Some of the lyrics are like, you know, my... My, my papa will be worried and things like that. And they go back and forth. And then she says, what's in this drink? As they go back and forth with whatever's in the drink. Now, that could be misconstrued, a lot of stuff. But I hate to say this, Shaggy. I think we become super hypersensitive. In 1944, I'm sure they want to talk about date rape drugs back then. I'm not knocking that out about date rape. It's very serious. Yeah. What I'm saying is that it was, to me a pleasant exchange between two people. Now, I've made fun of the song over the years on my show. It does sound kind of creepy, but if you're going to ban that song, you got to ban a lot of other songs, too. 
So if you do a song, for example, like uh, the great uh, song that came out years ago, before our time, uh, Backdoor Santa. You know, Backdoor Santa deals with, you know, some raunchy stuff. I break, you know, I make my round by the break of day. Ho, ho, ho. You know, it gets very nasty. Got to get rid of that song, too. So other songs, hell, you might as well cross the board. Let's, let's, for here's the thing. Since we're on this subject, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a, a classic animation by Rack and Bass for years. Okay, you got to get rid of that cartoon. Why? Because Rudolph has a red nose, and that promotes alcoholism. He's a drunk. Uh, you got uh, the dentist. Remember the scene with the, all the elves? You had the dentist, and, you know, he's talking about dentistry and everything else. Yeah. He comes off kind of like very, you know, kind of, you know, gay. So you got to bash gay dentistry. You got to get rid of that. We can't have that. That's a uh, niche, by the way. You're bashing gay yeah. dentistry. There's like four guys in the state of New York going, hey. I mean, that's a niche, man. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, but let's go all the way with it. Let's, let's dismantle everything. Let's go back to the whole thing with, with, with Rudolph. So you have the snowman. Okay. That offends people. Why? Because on the street, when people sell cocaine, what they are called? The snowman. Called snowman. Thank you. So we got to go across the board and just... Just the hell with Christmas. We don't just don't have it no more. You know what? As long as we're throwing out this here, I'm going to just throw into the mix white Christmas. Why I got to be white, y'all? See? You know? See? I see no black Christmas. Right. You know, or brown Christmas. Right. You know, come on. Let's do, let's do, let's just dismantle everything about Christmas. But, okay, you know, on a very serious side here, some people have said that yeah. the line, what's in this drink? is not being yes. listened to historically accurate. Now, this is the historical accurate context of that line. Okay. Now, I'm going to give it to you, and I want, you, I want you to say either agree or disagree and why, because the historical context of that, that, that line is the fact that when somebody, like a, a, a young lady that was, you know, noticing that a man was giving her the, the fancy eye, if you know what I'm saying, they would often, yes. as a, a way of uh, preserving their dignity, they would often kind of pretend to be under the uh, the influence of something, of saying, oh, I'm not really into this guy. It must have been something in the drink, so or it must have been something that I had taken or eaten or something like that. So in 1944, when she's saying, what's in this drink, she's not saying, uh, I'm tasting some rehypnol here. She's actually saying... I want to engage in some amorous behavior, but as society deems necessary at this time, I, being a fully liberated woman, can't make those decisions for myself, so I have to blame them on some sort of alcoholic libation. I go along with that. I go along with that for the time being, because, again, you have to take into consideration the time this was coming out. Again, 1944. So, But when you hear it in today's day, depending on who you are, in 2018, with the hashtag MeToo movement, saying that we don't agree with the lyrics. Uh, again, there are lyrics out there that deal with just head-on sex that has no romanticism whatsoever. You have to dismantle and break down every genre that talks about something that offends people. Because when you single this out, I'm not saying they don't have, they don't have a point. I'm just saying that be careful because it could become very hypersensitive. For example, if, if baby is cold outside, was made in 2018, I think they have more of a point. I'm not knocking their point, but this is 1944. 
Yeah, because look, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and say, as long as we're tossing out Christmas songs and stuff, never in my life have I heard, and I'm hoping that this is not the year that I do this. Uh, never in my life have I heard anybody complain about Christmas in Holland Hollis Queens by Run DMC or Curtis Blow's right. Christmas Rap. So if you're looking for some good songs, I just gave you two. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I hope I hope people listen to it and actually you know, take your word and listen, because whatever side that you belong to, you should enjoy the holiday season. And what's what bothers me is when people put politics or movements into certain things where I don't know, I, I, I think at times it stays in its own lane. Mm-hmm. This could have stayed in its own lane. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the the, the funny thing is, though, is, is as we get through the Christmas programming, station after station is going to kind of receive pressure to go after this song. So at the end of the day, this 2018 could be the last Christmas of it being cold outside, not just because of global warming, <laughs> but because of the right, Me Too right. movement. <laughs> OK, no, you're right. I mean, yeah, you're right. It, it could happen. I guess I guess for me. I've heard various, like you, a version over the years, whether it was Dean Martin or even like uh, Martina McBride uh, uh, doing like her version combined with Dean Martin's old version over the years, uh, CeeLo uh, with uh, Christina Aguilera. So you've seen and heard various versions of it, and I always got a kick out of it. But again, when you bring in the hashtag MeToo movement, which I'm all for that because it needs a voice, mm-hmm. I think right now this is just a little bit too much. Yeah, yeah. And I'm. I'm... I'm going to kind of go out on a ledge here and defend historical context, okay? That's all I'm going to yeah. say, historical that, context. Now, here is something that I don't know a lot about, but when you sent me the story today, and I read some of the, the, the quotes from one Skip Bayless, holy cow, tis the season to pour the tea. Chris, can we talk a little bit about Skip Bayless and his big F you to his life, family, and anybody that thought they meant anything to him. Well, Skip Bayless, for those of you who follow sports, uh, is a sports commentator for uh, Fox Sports 1 with a program called Undisputed that he co-hosts with Shannon Sharp. Prior to that, he was on ESPN as one of the first hosts of First Take with Stephen A. Smith prior to that. Um, He's a very prolific sports writer, very highly opinionated. We got him on the show. And he grew up in Oklahoma City and pretty much had parents who did not give two dams about him, who abused him, who verbally, and he got into fisticuffs with his father during this time. The reason why I want to bring this story up is because I follow sports like most guys and gals, and you never know what a person is going through in their whole personal life. The way he is now, you would have thought that he could have been very ser- seriously damaged uh, mentally and physically, uh, but he seems to rise above it. And I thought it was very interesting. For those of you may know or not, uh, his parents own the Hickory House restaurant there at OK, you know, Oklahoma City. He's also the brother of Chef uh, Rick Bayless. Oh, he's kind of famous. Yes, he's kind of famous. Yeah, here in Chicago, he owns the Frontier Grill. Uh-huh. He's been on PBS. You know, one must can play at a time, one must can play at a time, done it for years. So both of them come from that same environment. So I was thinking about when I got the story, what's Rick's side of the whole thing? Because Rick was the one that went into the family business, of obviously, of cooking and becoming a chef. But when it came on to Skip, 
who thoroughly said on on uh, Facebook that he pretty much did not have any feelings for his parents because he was he was abused thoroughly. Uh, yeah, open hand smacks from his father, who who made sure that he had the wedding ring catch Skip right, right in the lip or somewhere across the nose right. because he always wanted to seem bloody. But Skip was kind of a big kid and told his dad one day, that's the last time you hit me, and his dad didn't. Now, this is something that I kind of want to bring up because this story does illustrate something for kids that have abusive fathers like this. When Skip stood up to him, the dad backed down, and in Skip's words, I realized he was nothing but a big coward and bully. Mm. Yeah, uh, those are very powerful words, to say the least. And, and at the same time, you saw probably the shrinking of his father and the building up of Skip when that exchange happened. There was no more, you're going to put your hands on me or verbally abuse me. That became a new day. He probably came, I know I read an article as well, that he uh, left the home at 18 years old. He became a man that day, as far as I'm concerned. To stand up to your father who's abused you in all these type of years, and your father had the upper hand, now the hands have changed. Now the powers have shifted. So when he called him a very coward and you know bully and spineless and everything else, that, that's, that speaks volumes. Because he had to break away from that in order to become the man that he is now. The thing is, too, is like, okay, so I've been talking about American ideal stories this week. And I said that, you know, the life of George H.W. Bush uh, counterpositioned against the life of and presidency of George W. Bush was kind of one of those classic right. American tales of the father didn't do something right and the son was the redeemer. And believe it or not, I had a, a radio station email me this week and send me an email and said, Shaggy, I did not like that comparison of Bush Sr. and Jr. kind of being the American redemption story. So this is the thing. Since that story didn't fly, I'm going to say that when it comes to stories of people succeeding despite heavy odds— despite having no support systems, despite having uh, just really parents that just wanted to beat their ass every chance they got, there is some little hope in America that we are the type of country that you can break away from that environment and you can go on without spite, without being a a real tyrant in life. You can actually escape that and go on to be a better person like Bayless, can't you? Absolutely. It, it should be inspiring. It should be must-reading. People should gravitate towards that because what Skip Bayless did was he did not let that situation in his life define him. His defining moment, again, going back to standing up to his father. Mm-hmm. So ever since then, I think that was the birth of the Skip Bayless we're not familiar with. But that, had to, that was a peak moment in time for him to make a, a trajectory shift into his life, and yeah. it should be, I mean, it should be, it should be a must read. Oh God, yeah, no, this should be taught in schools. Chris, we're running out of time, so real quick, mm-hmm. where can people find you online? Go to facebook.com backslash Chris Base C H R I S B is in broadcasting A S E. You find me there, the brown guy with glasses, by the uh, command center 
Broadcasting Radio. Mm-hmm. Show the picture. You'll, you'll find it. Oh, yeah. Very handsome guy. Hey, as for uh, me, I have got to go. So, everybody, stay safe over this weekend. If you've missed any part of the show, go to ShaggyJenkins.com or subscribe and give us a review on Spotify. Just look for The Shaggy Jenkins Show. Until next time, everybody. Love you, mean it. Kate and bye. <laughs>